The Plant Advice Gardening Podcast, Episode 8. Plantadvice.co.uk for all your gardening needs. Hello and welcome to the Plant and Rice Gardening Podcast, the podcast to inspire you and to help you get the best out of your garden. I'm Richard Farrer. And I'm George Munford. Coming up. In this episode, we've got an interview with Malcolm Dixon, who is the owner, proprietor of Hooks Green Herbs in Staffordshire. And he talks to us about his nursery, specialising in herbs and the shows he does across the country. Quite an interesting interview. We've got coming up on that later. Our plant of the month for November is Acer Palmatum Atropurpureum. Perfect pairing, two plants that complement each other, are Betula utilis variety Jackmontii and Crocus speciosus albus. We've got jobs to do in the garden and the vegetable garden. And plants of note for this month of November are Anemone Wild Swan and Sternbergia lutea. So, George, we're heading into November now. It's definitely autumn, isn't it? It is. Lots of leaves to clear up, aren't there, Richard? But that's a valuable source of nutrients as well, if you can make some leaf mould. Absolutely. It's, it's a very good soil improver, not necessarily very high in nutritional value. But if you've got a heavy clay soil, for example, if you dig in well-rotted leaf mould, it can certainly improve the structure of it and make it more free-draining. And what's the easiest way to make leaf mould if you haven't got a huge amount of space for a, a special compost bin for it? What's a quick tip for making leaf mould? Well, you could make your own compost bin. Uh, with some pallets that's a good idea and i suppose the pallets give good aeration for the compost that's as right well. yes yes or if you're on a really small scale you could do something as basic as put leaves in a black bin liner and just piss holes in the side they'll still rot in there i would think i think we've actually done that one year before and you don't get a huge amount but if you've got a small vegetable plot every little bit help is helpful isn't it absolutely yes and if you were to mix the leaf malt with some uh, well-rotted horse manure, for example, you'd get the nutritional value from the, the manure and the, the structure-improving qualities of the leaf malt combined. And usually it's quite easy to get hold of horse manure. There's lots of stables around. It's muck they want to get rid of. And sometimes they're quite happy if you'll turn up and take a few bags away from them. Yes, my mother is also a keen gardener and she has um, a rather embarrassing habit of if you're out in the car with her, she'll have a shovel and a bag in the back of the car. And if if she sees any horse manure in the middle of the road, she'll stop and shovel it up and put it in the back of the car. My dad used to do exactly the same thing. <laughs> Perhaps it's a generational thing, yes, George. Yes, maybe it is. Anything for free. Yeah, and why not? A good tip. Well... Before, I think I might have mentioned to you that I was considering doing an RHS course in horticulture, a small course, at the local college. Unfortunately, the local college didn't go ahead with it as they didn't have enough people taken up on the course. And it was quite expensive. It was originally £650 and went up to £800. And I just thought, that's too much. I really can't justify that. But I have taken the plunge. I'm doing it as a distance learning course. I think I've got the course for, from memory, it was £135. And I've got my first instalment sent in the post. And I'm learning all about monocots and dicots now. 
Brilliant, Richard. So I won't be the expert for very long. Then. No, I think you'll always be the expert. You'll always have the advantage on me that you can get out in the garden and do things practically. I don't have that opportunity, but I am really enjoying learning the theory about it. I think it's fantastic. So hopefully I'll be able to report back in future months how I'm getting on and other things I've learned. Brilliant, Richard. I really wish you the best of luck with that course. Thank you, George. I might be coming to you for help and advice when I get a bit stuck. Yeah, I'll be happy to help. Brilliant. Okay, moving on then, we've got our feature segment, which is the interview I did with Malcolm Dixon, who I bumped into quite a few times at the shows, like Chelsea Flower Show. Malcolm is always a pleasure to talk to at the shows, and he's got a wealth of knowledge about herbs. So here we are, here's the interview I did previously with Malcolm Dixon of Hooks Green Herbs. So hello Malcolm, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's nice to be here, Richard. It is indeed. We uh, we bump into you quite often at the, the flower shows. Chelsea, Hampton Court, there's, well, I think you do more than we do. How many flower shows a year do you tend to do? The flower shows, I think it must be, I've got them on the wall here, actually, but I think it must be something in the region 10 or 11, and then we have around that plant fairs and the Wisley plant fairs and bigger plant fairs and so on. So all in all, it's from <clears throat> April time right through until September, full on. It's a bit like a rock star. You spend a lot of time on the road then. Uh, I do, yes. I tend to go down with Thomas, uh, my son, and we, we do up the um, display that we've got to put together. And then he will normally go home to the nursery, uh, which would allow him to carry on working and uh, planning for the next show, which probably will come up in the following week. So we, we have to keep plants going. We have to have lots of show plants and keep them in good trim and so that you know, we can move on to the next show because the ones we're using on that particular show will be no use after it. So that's that's the nature of the beast, you know. Now, you haven't always been in a plant business, I guess. I think I read somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, that your background was in the military. Oh, that was a long time ago when I was a young man. Yes, I, I actually served for a three-year short service commission in the early uh, late 60s, early 70s. So I did three years in the Coldstream Guards, yeah. So how did you get into the plant business? Oh, that was um, in, in 20 years ago, actually. 20 years ago next year, I um, was working in an industrial company, working as a sales director of a distribution company. We were distributing laminate, which is like Formica, sheet Formica, selling to kitchen people, shop fitters, display people, all sorts and um, I've been doing that for 10 years and really it came to the end of its life. So I was looking for other things to do. I, I went off and worked on my own importing from Italy and then working with the Italians was quite difficult. They never did what they said they would. <laughs> they tend to do their own thing. So um, at that time, my wife was growing lots of plants and we were advised that with the excess we had to put it into a local auction. So we went up to the auction, put the plants on the floor, put a note on to say what we wanted and went home. And then the following Saturday, we got um, a check. And I thought, oh, this is rather fun. And it was really from that that we started to do it properly. And we put up some polytunnels and, and did it, really. You're yeah. essentially growing money, aren't you? Uh, yeah. I, I think the thing is that when you're growing plants the actual material costs are quite small. So you can imagine seed, compost and a pot are not that much money. Um, when you come to sell them, um, if you're getting, we get £2.50 for a herb on the shows, it's a very good margin. 
but you're only getting it for five or six months of the year. So you have to get as much as you can in order to see, do the 12 months and see yourself through the winter and things like that. A very seasonal trade then. Yeah, yeah. And weather dependent, of course. So, you know, there's, there's quite a lot one has to take into account. But it's been good. I mean, we've, this year we've had a very good year. Thomas has come back from South Africa, having gone off there you know, last year on what he thought was uh, em- he was going to emigrate, but actually uh, it didn't work out. So he came back again much to my relief. It is very much a family business, isn't it? Ours is, yes. It's um, my wife and I and uh, Thomas, his, uh, my son, and his wife, Jane. And then they've got two little children. They've got William, who's three, and Annabelle, who's nine months. And uh, they all get uh, involved in some way. Although the, ch- the children have more destruction than anything else, I think. I love the photo you've got on a website of all the wellies lined up in a yes. row. That was Jane's idea and a number of people who commented on that. I think it's, it's beautiful, true. yeah, and certainly the kids, your grandchildren. Yeah. 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 I can imagine they can be more of a hindrance sometimes. Well, they think they're helping, but... Yeah, they, well, they, they take a lot of time. And, of course, you know, if they're having to be looked after, then you can't really go out on the nurse and start doing things. You have to just look after them and then someone else has to take over. So, yeah. Now, you say you started off in plants, but it wasn't herbs, I guess. What made you specialise in herbs latterly? I was working for uh, doing the markets. Really. We, were we were buying one or two shrubs in, we were buying one or two climbers, and we were growing perennials, rockery, herbs, and a whole crop of bedding in the spring. And it, uh, when Thomas came back from Africa in 2005, and we decided to start working together and set up Hooks Green Herbs, it was really on the basis that herbs had always sold well. They sell throughout the year. They're an impulse buy. People pick them up and buy them. They do a lot of things, so you can get scent, you can get flowers, and you can use them. So they tick a lot of boxes. And it was really on the basis of that that we did it. We were very fortunate that in the show circuit, a lot of the people who were growing herbs actually stopped. So, for instance, Jekyll McVicker, who uh, is sort of number one in herbs, at that time, in about 2005, 2006, decided to stop doing display work. And Kim Hurst down at Tembryon Wells did a few, but started to slow down on it. And one or two others backed out as well. And we were left with an open playing field. And in fact, we are one of the few that do it at the moment. So the timing was very fortuitous. Extraordinary, yeah. It was, it was. It was purely luck in a way. Where do you get the name Hooks Green from? Hooks Green is the farm where we live. An easy one to decide. Yeah. It, was, it was a good choice because... Um, it's got green in it, which is a good thing. And um, it's a name that people can remember. So, yeah, it works. Now, to the uneducated, what would you define as a herb? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A herb is officially a plant that can it has a use to man. That could cover um, a lot of things. It could cover yeah, crops like yeah. corn and wheat. And... Yep, yep. The, the, our Bible really is the RHS Encyclopedia of Herbs, which is quite a large tome of book, but it does include everything from trees, certain trees right down to parsley. It's quite a broad um, palette, actually. And what conditions do herbs usually enjoy? A lot of herbs are from the Mediterranean region, from the south of Europe. Uh, and on the basis of that, that's, they're looking for their the best are in uh, warm free-draining, full light, full sunshine conditions. The soil doesn't need to be posh soil. It needs to be grit, gravel, free-draining, so the water can get away from the roots. And that's when you think of lavender and rosemary and thyme and oregano, those sort of things, they don't like to sit around in the wet. 
So that's probably a key thing with most herbs then. Is it free draining soil? Free draining soil, yeah. That's the key to it, yeah. <laughs> Son, we can't do too much about that, can we? We're in the lap of the gods on that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can increase the um, the amount of uh, grit and gravel and, and um, stuff in the soil in order that uh, when the, when it does rain and it, it begins, you know, it, it, you can get it away. If you plant thyme and some of the plants like that on a slight incline, that helps as well because, of course, the water is going to get away from the plant. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Good tip. Now, if someone was at home and they don't have a large garden, but they'd like a few culinary herbs, let's say five herbs, could they, for example, put a couple of herbs in a hanging basket or a window box? And if they could, what five herbs would you recommend for that? Um, so we're talking culinary herbs. Yeah, something they could I use would, in the uh, kitchen. The, the old favourites really are parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme. And they're all relatively straightforward to grow. But they need a bit of space, so there's no point in shoving all of them into one relatively small pot. I mean, they should have uh, their own space, their own environment to grow. And um, parsley is a biennial. Sage is a shrub, which gets quite big. Rosemary is a shrub as well, an evergreen shrub. And thyme is a low, often, well, it's a small uh, upright uh, shrub, the vulgari, the one which is used for cooking. Are there smaller dwarf varieties of some of those plants that you can get, though? Yeah, you can get a low-growing um, uh, rosemary. There are a number of rosemary, some that even trail. So from the point of view of a uh, hanging basket, that would be quite fun. And you can still use those in your cooking? Yes, you can. Yeah, they've got the same uh, scent and uh, taste. But uh, I suppose, strictly speaking, rosemary officinalis is the one that is used for cooking. Uh, and there are a number that sort of go into that bracket. And then we also have ginger rosemary, which we've had for a number of years now. We actually introduced to Chelsea 2011 when we put it on, uh, when they came and filmed us. And we had the interest for it. It was phenomenal. We just about held our head above water. I think we've actually run out this year again, but we've got a lot of cuttings coming on for the spring. So it's a plant that needs a bit of protection. So it, it needs to be planted in the spring, let it in mature during the summer and then it'll get through a winter quite easily now you do have quite a few different varieties as well i remember i think we bought one from you at one of the shows it was an oregano hot and spicy does that ring a bell yeah that's right and it it, it is like um it's curry it's incredibly spicy you'd never think of that from an oregano no it has a very hot taste about it and um it certainly one or two people have said oh that what's that and you give them a small leaf at the show they eat it and they think, oh, I have one of those because it's uh, if it's put into a salad or something, it just gives it that extra. A lift. real pep. Yeah, I love it. I, I yeah. think a fantastic plant. Now, you mentioned Chelsea. When did you actually do your first Chelsea show? That must have been quite nervous for you. It was interesting. It was 2011 and um, we'd done a number of RHS displays up until then. We That year, in fact, we'd, we'd got a gold medal at, no, after, it was after that, I think. So it must have been the previous year, 2010, we had a gold medal at the NEC and we had a gold medal at Hampton Court. So then going into 2011, we were doing okay. We got a silver gilt at uh, Malvern and uh, moved on to Chelsea the following week or so. But we scored a silver. The first show we did, we got a silver. I think that's jolly good going for a first time at Chelsea. Wasn't too bad, yeah, wasn't too bad. I mean, we got a Chelsea medal. That was the main thing. Yeah, it's, the, it's the prestigious one, isn't it? It is the top of the pile. 
It is, yeah. Last year we got a silver as well, and this year we got a silver gilt, which was really good. I mean, that was edging in the right direction. So um, we're all set for next year now. We've got a big, a big project. You're still trying to go for gold then, are you? Oh, yeah, I think you have to. And once you've got it, you can probably retire. <laughs> 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 it would be an amazing achievement. I really hope you do get it sometime, Malcolm. I always enjoy your stands, and I think your knowledge is amazing. It's lovely to come and talk to you. You can tell people such an interesting background about plants. I think it was a bergamot, uh, a monada you uh, mentioned to me once. And wasn't there something about tea? It was a substitute for tea in the American Civil Wars or something? That's right, yeah. It was um, when they had the Boston Tea Party and threw all the tea into the sea and didn't export it to this country. They used Monada in this country as a substitute to make the tea. And in fact, it's now partly to do to make Earl Grey. There's a taste comes from it. Really? So, yeah, that's an interesting one. But I pick all these things up talking to people like you who tell me about these things. <laughs> and we remember them and pass them on. I think it's fascinating. It really is. You yeah, must have a yeah. wealth of knowledge for these things. On your website, it says you supply to the public. Do you supply to any garden centres at all, or is it purely uh, a public-facing business? No, it's a public-facing business. I mean, we we have in the past, when we uh, initially started growing and selling, dealt with uh, one or two uh, garden centres and uh, retailers. But actually, from the point of view of we can't produce enough stuff of our own, let alone to supply someone else, and then you're only going to get half a price for it. So... It doesn't appeal to us, and we have to chase the money afterwards. So the whole thing, we knock that on the head. We deal purely retail and purely with the public. Yeah. And you retail to the public, obviously at shows and things, but you do have a website where people can order online as well. Yeah, hookscreenherbs.com, and um, we've launched that again this year. As a, It's a new website. It's actually um, using a new format called Big Commerce. From uh, It's an American format. And it's a very it's very effective. It seems to have done the job. We're getting orders regularly. Uh, we just recently put on all the garlic, the seed garlic that we're selling now, and um, put it on yesterday and got some orders today. So it, it, there are obviously people going out there to have a look at it, which is great. And it's one of the reasons we do the shows is to push traffic towards the website as well. It know? is. It's a very nice looking website. What sort of percentage of business would you say comes from online compared to the shows? Oh, online is small at the moment. It's not nothing to uh, to write home about but it, it, it's beginning to grow and beginning to make uh, an impression you know and that that's really what we want now earlier you mentioned jacken mcvicker i believe she's the um the chief of the herb society which you have recently joined on the executive committee um so what, right. what exactly do the herb society do and promote and what's your function on the committee well, I'm one of the um, members of the council, uh, which really look after the Herb Society, and Jack and McVicker is the president. So hers is a, it's not an executive position, it's just a sort of overall position. The council keep the, the Herb Society moving in the right direction, which was set up um, a while ago, I mean years ago, in the early part of the uh, 1900s by a lady called uh, Lael, and it was to do with medicine more to do with medicinal than to do with uh, anything else and you had to be invited to join it these days it's a question of um, finding people to join and trying to increase the membership but you get a, a magazine every quarter and there's a website and there's a lot of information available so it, it's it's an interesting thing to be part of if you're interested in herbs certainly so it's been eight years since you set up hook screen herbs you've obviously come a long way you've done a lot you've done chelsea you've got your new website where to from here? 
Well, we've um, just recently done a workshop, which was an interesting exercise with the um, the Women's Farming and Gardening Association from Sirencester. And we had a number of ladies come here and we, we just went through the procedures we used to do cuttings and splitting and um, seed growing and all the aspects of the um, darling. Sorry. Someone's making tea in the background. Aren't yeah, they? someone's making tea in the background. Uh, all the aspects of um, growing on the nursery. So it, it, I think that's quite a nice way to go because they come and they pay and uh, it's an interesting thing. Well, I love your stands. I love the fact you can eat or do something with pretty much every single plant you've got on your stand. I think that's one of the best things. And they can also look so pretty. They do. They look well. And also, I mean, a lot of we use a lot of medicinal and um, we have a lot of scented and we have a lot of culinary. So it's all sort of mixture of that lot. So if people listening would like to get hold of you, how can they get hold of you and how can they buy the plants from you? They can email me on the website uh, at hooksgreenherbs.com. They can ring me on a phone number, which is on the, the website. Those are the main two ways of getting hold of us, really. Obviously, at the shows, anywhere on the shows. Which are all the RHS shows. And you've got a list of those shows coming up, I guess, on your website, the places you'll be attending yeah, next year. Yeah, they'll be on the website as well, yeah. Well, Malcolm, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been very okay. interesting. And uh, I hope to bump into you at a few of the shows next year. No, I'll see you there, and I hope your wheelchair doesn't break down. <laughs> yes, yeah. I conked out at uh, BBC Gardener's World Live, didn't I? And uh, one, I got yeah. stuck in your stand for 15 well. minutes. <laughs> I think it's fixed for a moment, but it was a nice place to get stuck. Excellent. We apologise for the noisy recording. I think when we did the interview, Malcolm was in the kitchen, and I think it sounds like his wife was making tea. Never mind, it's still a very good interview. Yes, and remember, Richard, she was probably using herbs in the recipe. I'm sure she was, fresh out of the garden or out of the nursery. Yeah, so the background noise is not a problem at all. No, I'm sure it was delicious. What do you think of Malcolm then, George? Excellent interview, Richard, and I always admire people that uh, set up a business like that from scratch. And very often, as a result of... Uh, he, he mentioned that he... He took some herbs to the auction, didn't he, at the yeah. start? I think it was um, very interesting how the business grew from a small, very small beginnings yeah. of just growing yeah. plants yourself, propagating them, yeah. into yeah. A, a, a business supporting the whole family. Yes, that's right. And I think that's one of the ways that I got interested in horticulture myself was I just grew some bedding plants from seed in the greenhouse. And I suppose the entrepreneur in me thought, well, I may, might be able to sell some of these. And I just took them to a car boot sale and made a, uh, a small fortune. Well, no, not a small fortune. A small <laughs> fortune, as a teenager would think, from selling these bedding plants that I'd just grown in the greenhouse and selling them at the car boot sale. And it was uh, a very rewarding thing for me to do. It is. Once you bring and nurture plants along yourself, you are, like I said to Malcolm, you're essentially growing money, aren't you? Yeah. You've got minimal cost from the pots and, and the, the soil. But once you start growing them, you can see money growing in front of your eyes. Yeah, there is money-making potential in every aspect of horticulture. Going back to the, the leaf mould, you could collect leaves at this time of year and then in a year or two's time you could be selling that back to keen gardeners as a soil improver. Lots of potential for the young entrepreneur. Yeah, there's no reason to say that you can't make money from any aspect of horticulture really. Well, if you're out there and you're a youngster thinking of a career in horticulture, 
Why not take George's advice and earn a bit of extra pocket money? <laughs> Go for it. For this month, George, you've chosen the plant of the month as Acer Parmatum Atropurpureum. Yes, this is the Japanese maple. They are small trees that can grow up to eight metres tall, but they spread further than they grow in height, up to ten metres. Uh, they're fully hardy, and you can also grow them in a, in a pot if you don't have the required soil in your garden to grow Acepartmatum atropurpureum, which is a, a well-drained soil, neutral to slightly acid in pH. So that means they need ericaceous soil. Yes, they do. And all, all, if you're going to grow them in a pot, always use a loam-based potting compost for a permanent planting. Well, what does loam actually mean? Well, it means that it has soil in the compost. Now, many multi-purpose compost, for example, will have a very high content of peat, Peat has great qualities, but it does dry out quite easily. And I would argue that a soil-based compost does not dry out as quickly as peat. And I would also say that a soil-based compost will hold on to its nutritional value for longer. Aren't there also some environmental concerns with peat? That's right. The peat bogs are being, as I understand it, gradually eradicated. It's a limited resource. It is, Absolutely. And there are also wildlife habitats, of course, as well. Well, it's obviously a, a controversial topic to debate, and I wouldn't like to debate it because I don't have enough knowledge of it. But wildlife habitats are being destroyed, I think, by constant peat production or extraction of the peat from the bogs. Well, it is a very limited resource, so once it's all gone, it's gone because it's rotted vegetable matter from years gone by, isn't it? Once that's used up, there's no more peat, so we probably do need to find an alternative source now and stick with it because eventually there's not going to be any left. That's right. Any potting compost, we need to think about the environmental applications of using it. Uh, It's really important if we're to sustain uh, the environment and to sustain the different compost that we want to use in the future. So going back to Acepartmatum atropurpureum, it's a lovely little tree that has deeply lobed foliage and, as the name suggests, parmatum, each leaf resembles a hand, hence the species name. The leaves are dark purple-red in colour and in the autumn they turn an even brighter red. It's a really striking colour. The aces are lovely. I really do like those. That's right. They are quite fussy, though, Richard, as you know. I think you've had one in your garden. Yeah, I had one in the sort of um, little side corridor between the garage and the house. Yeah. In the pot, which, like you say, is a good way to grow them because you can provide them with exactly the right type of soil, the ericaceous soil. But I think there's a little bit of a wind that whistles around there, and I gather they're susceptible to wind damage. Yeah, they need shelter from both strong sunshine, which can burn the foliage, and also strong winds, as you said. Both of those things can burn the foliage. So you do have to be a bit patient with them and try and find exactly the right spot in your garden if you're going to grow them in a pot. Of course, you might be lucky enough to live in a part of the country where you can grow these in the open soil, which is always much better because they have a an unlimited supply almost of uh, soil and moisture in which to spread their roots into. Well, some of you might be listening from a different country. I know we get listeners from all over the globe, so you might have completely different conditions than we have here in the UK, and ACES might be more than happy in your conditions. 
Yes, absolutely. And as I said, if, if you can grow one of these trees in the open soil, you need to think about its eventual size in terms of 8 metres tall and 10 metres wide. Quite large. Yes, they are. So you, you wouldn't want to plant them too close to a house, for example. Not large for a tree, certainly not large for a tree, but yeah, a pretty big shrub uh, would grow to that sort of dimensions. Well, aces do make a real statement in the garden. A, because the colour of the leaves, and B, because of the shape of the leaves. Like you say, palmatum, and they're quite jagged, aren't they? Nice sharp edges to them. Uh, And they get the name Japanese maple. They do look very maple-like. Yes, and they always remind me of my very first job in horticulture. When I finished my four years of studying horticulture, I went and worked at Kew Gardens. And one of the places in the gardens that I particularly enjoyed was the Japanese gateway, which had... Uh, many Japanese aces planted around it. Lots of different varieties available. Well, if you'd like to buy that particular plant, we do have a link on our website under the show notes, which you can get at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 8. Perfect pairing. This month, George, you've chosen two plants that go well together. In November, you've got Petula utilis variety Jackmontii, which is a West Himalayan birch, and Crocus speciosus albus. Yes, this month I thought I would come up with a a colour theme for the perfect pairing. So this month I've chosen white. The two plants have white aspects to them. The Betula utilis variety Jackmontii is a medium-sized tree that can grow up to 18 metres tall and has a spread of about 10 metres. And of course, with all the betulas, really, the most striking aspect of them is the is the white bark of the trunk and the branches, which is absolutely striking. In fact, near us, Richard, we have Anglesey Abbey, and I understand at Anglesey Abbey that the head gardener there has that collection of birches. I think some of them might be Jack Montii. And he actually pressure washes the branches to keep, really? to keep that them clean. In, that's in the winter garden they have. Yeah, there. that's it. Yeah. yeah, the winter garden is stunning. It's in it. Mm. If you ever get the chance, it's in Cambridgeshire, as George says, Anglesey Abbey, and they've got one particular part of the garden which is specifically designed to look its best in winter. And it doesn't just use foliage; it uses a lot of things, colours, like George says, the West Himalayan birch, the beautiful white bark. They've got the cherry tree. What's the prunus? Oh, Prunus cerula. Yeah the, yeah, the one with the the Tibetan cherry with the wonderful sort of mahogany bark. Yeah, it looks like... Yeah, very shiny. looks like they've polished the bark. It looks so yeah. nice. And they've yeah. got the winter dogwood, which has the lovely red bark. Yes, there's so many lovely winter plants that have striking bark. Of course, you can use our website to find plants that are particularly striking in the winter. But going back to the Betula utilis jackmontii, Uh, It's fully hardy and the leaves are dark green in colour and in the autumn they turn bright yellow. It requires a moderately fertile, well-drained soil and a site that's in either full sun or light shade. And my idea for the perfect pairing this month is to underplant the Betula utilis variety Jackmontii with the bulb Crocus speciosus albus. It's an autumn flowering bulb that flowers from September to November and it has lovely white goblet-shaped flowers and narrow green leaves with a white midrib. If you plant the bulbs in July and August 10 centimetres deep, they'll flower this time of year. 
Of course, we expect most crocuses to flower in the spring, so it's quite unusual to have a, a crocus that flowers in the autumn time. But much needed colour at this time of year. Yes, if you look around and do plenty of research, there you can always have colour in the garden at any time I think of I've year. been surprised, actually, how much colour you really can have in a winter garden. Yes, absolutely. There's bulbs, isn't there, with the snowdrops. There's leaf colour with some of the evergreens. Bark colour. Bark colour. Berries, of course. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. All aspects of the plant, there's different colours in all of them during the wintertime. It's quite a challenge, though, to make a garden look good all year round. But I guess it is possible with a bit of thought. Absolutely, yeah. We shouldn't be talking too much about the winter yet, Richard. It's not here. We, we talk <laughs> about the autumn. We don't want to wish it on us. No, not not quite yet. Not after the last couple of winters would have been no, extremely at l- cold. At least we've had a nice summer this year. Absolutely, yeah. We're getting a bit... Uh, the weather now is a bit wet, isn't it? But you expect that this time of year. Yeah. Again, those two plants, if you're interested, we do have links online that you can buy them, which you can get at via our show notes for this episode at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 8. Jobs to do in the garden. Now, it's actually quite a busy time in the garden in November, isn't it, George? Yes, there's still lots to do in the garden at this time of year. I think there's always things that that can be done in the garden at any time of year, Richard. So amongst the jobs this month, you can take hardwood cuttings of various shrubs. Of course, we always like to encourage our listeners to um, propagate some of their own plants in their own garden if they'd like more of them. So this month, you could take hardwood cuttings of shrubs such as the dogwood that Richard mentioned before, for example, Cornus alba siberica. Some of the elders can be produced this month from hardwood cuttings, for example, the black-leaved sambucus. And what you do is you take stems of the plants at this time of year, about 20 centimetres long and pencil thick. You make a cut, a sloping cut above a bud at the top of the, the cutting, and at the base of the 20 centimetres, you cut a horizontal, again, below a bud. You then dip the cutting in hormone rooting powder and put it in a prepared slit trench that you've done before you take the cutting. And you literally push the cutting into the trench about three quarters of its length and then fill the trench back in and be patient and leave leave it for over a year. And what happens is you'll see that after a year or 18 months, the cuttings that you've put in the ground will have new leaves on them. So that's the telltale sign that they've produced roots. And if you haven't got hormone rooting powder, will it still work? Many cuttings will. It's just something that professional growers use to increase the chances of a strike. That's the technical term that professional growers use for rooting a cutting. You've struck the cutting, so once you get it rooted, it's a strike. Other jobs we've talked about before, collecting fallen leaves. You can also divide many different herbaceous perennials this month by digging up the clump and removing the youngest outside sections, disposing of the the central bit, which is often the oldest and the tiredest, and replanting those outside sections that you've split from the main section. If you've got a perennial that you particularly like, you can... Instead of just one clump, you can have four or five clumps all around the garden. It's also a good time to plant bare-rooted trees and shrubs. 
you should always be forking over borders at this time of year just to make sure all the rainfall gets soaked in easily rather than what you often get with heavy rain is a pan on the soil so the rain just runs off do you know what i mean richard yeah yeah so if you fork over the soil the rain will soak in nicely many people will cut their lawns for the last time this month in november you can still be planting bulbs such as tulips and daffodils for the spring and if you think about a new lawn next year you can prepare the site no seed sowing of course in november but you can prepare the site by leveling it if it's dry enough the soil's easy enough to work and get all the weeds out and there's a specific job for a plant if anyone's got this magnificent plant called gunnera manicata it's a lovely foliage plant that has huge great big leaves absolutely massive leaves you're not kidding there are you no, they're, they're huge, huge aren't they? yeah. yeah. It looks like a, a giant rhubarb. Yeah, and it's very a very dramatic architectural plant, isn't it? And you often see it growing near ponds where it's where it can get its roots actually into the pond. It's got a constant supply of water then. And what you do at this time of year is cut the leaves off, which are starting to wither and because it obviously produces a new set of leaves every year. And you use the leaves to protect the crowns of the plant against the winter weather because they're not fully hardy plants, you'll very often find them growing down in Cornwall, where it's that bit warmer during the winter. But they still do it down there. They use the massive foliage of these plants to cover the plants during the winter. Like an organic horticultural fleece. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's such a clever trick, that is. Yeah. (laughs) really is using the best of what's available. Well, I suppose it's just helping nature a bit. There, There are many plants where you don't prune anything at this time of year because the top growth protects the lower basal shoots which are maybe not quite as hardy as the the hardened wood on the top of the plant i know that's something you've always advised in the garden here i ask you sometimes should we be cutting this back or cutting that back and you say no we'll leave it there and we'll cut it back in the spring and the foliage will give some protection to the plant over winter yeah absolutely that's right in the vegetable garden In the vegetable garden this month, we can be sowing seeds outside of broad beans. A herb that we can be growing at this time of year is garlic. I've grown garlic in the past. It's a lovely herb to grow. You simply plant the cloves at this time of year and you end up with a bulb next summer. And they need the winter and a bit of frost and cold to kind of kickstart them in the spring? Yeah, that's right. You plant the bulbs at this time, not the bulbs, the... Um, clove the clove yeah you plant the clove at this time of year and it gives it nine or ten months to produce the bulb in the vegetable garden at this time of year we can be also harvesting swiss chard spinach cauliflowers brussels sprouts swede leeks radishes parsnips and kale i love the first season of the new season of parsnips do you richard I'm not a huge fan of parsnips. Well, there's one dish we do have at home here sometimes. I think it's a Jamie Oliver dish, which has got parsnip, which has been finely sort of sliced and tagliatelle. And I really love it in that dish, but I can't say I'm really keen on it as a roasted vegetable. No, I I love to roast parsnips with um, potatoes and roasted carrot as well. Lovely. It is a very seasonal vegetable, isn't it? And I'm sure it will appear on lots of tables at Christmas time. Yes, one of my favourites, I think. Plants of note. 
Now, plants of note for November, George, you've chosen anemone wild swan and Sternbergia lutea. Yes, anemone wild swan was the winner of the 2011 New Plant of the Year at the Chelsea Flower Show. I do remember seeing it that year and the stand in the centre of the Grand Marquis. It really caught my eye. It is a very, very pretty plant. And the reason it's particularly attractive to king gardeners is because it flowers for such a long time it's believed to be a cross between an early and a late flowering form possibly anemone rupicola and anemone hupensis hence the long flowering period so they took an early flowering anemone and a late flowering anemone and bred the two together and ended up with this anemone called wild swan that flowers for the two combined I didn't realise that. I remember looking at it and thinking it's a beautiful plant. Yeah. But May to November, that's a phenomenal flowering period. It's excellent, isn't it? Especially if you keep removing the deadheads as well. That's you get gonna... some real bang for your yeah. buck with that one. So it's a hardy perennial, and as Richard says, it flowers from May to November. Anemone wild swan has pure white flowers and a very distinctive blue-grey streak on the back of each petal. They're very easy to grow in any well-drained soil and they grow to a height of 45 centimetres and a spread also of 45 centimetres. And I think I mentioned before they're a hardy perennial. so An ideal border plant. Absolutely, and they'll be happy in partial shade but probably flower best with as much sun as you can give them. The other plant of note that Richard mentioned was Sternbergia lutea. As you know, I always like the naturally occurring species if they can compete with the cultivars. You do indeed, don't you, George? Yeah, I think any naturally occurring species that can hold its own against... Um, Some of the modern cultivars. The modern hybrids, cultivars. Yeah. That, I like to see that. That means the plants stood the test of time, I think. Now, Sternbergia lutea is a bulb, and it's native in the wild in a broad swathe from Spain in the west to Afghanistan in the east. It uh, has bright yellow flowers from September to November, and as you can imagine from where it comes from, it needs full sun and ideally gritty, poor soil is ideal. Mediterranean type climate. Yeah, it's, it is fully hardy though, and it grows up to about 15 centimetres in height and it has those lovely goblet shaped bright yellow flowers. Well, you mentioned Afghanistan and it can get fiendishly cold there, can't it? Yeah, at night it can, can't it? It has the extremes of temperature there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So if it can survive there, it should do well in our gardens. Yeah, it should do, shouldn't it? I suppose the only issue that we have in our gardens is the drainage. We, you, when you plant it, you need to make sure that it has good drainage and and that it's not sitting in any overly moist soil during the winter months. So the roots don't rot. Yeah, the the bulb doesn't rot, actually, you know, around the crown and around the, the roots as well. Yeah. yeah, same sort of thing for many bulbs, though, isn't it? Free draining soil. Yes, I mean, some bulbs are more tolerant of soil moisture than others, but uh, the clue is often where they come from in the wild if they're naturally occurring species. That's always a good clue for any plant. If you can try to mimic its naturally occurring environment as much as possible, you're heading in the right direction. That's right, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, that's about all for this month. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you've got any questions, you can email us. The email address is podcast at plantadvice.co.uk. The show notes for this episode you can find on our website at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 8. You can also find us elsewhere online at Plant Advice on Twitter or on Facebook or YouTube with the um, Plant Advice moniker. If you've liked the show, please do leave a rating on iTunes. You can find the link at plantadvice.co.uk slash iTunes. We'd love to hear from you how you think we're doing and if you've got any suggestions for improvements. And if you'd like to get a copy of our regular email newsletter, you can find that at plantadvice.co.uk slash subscribe. And when you do subscribe, we'll give you a free ebook on how to get the perfect lawn. That's all from us for this episode. Thanks ever so much for listening, and we hope you'll listen again next month. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast was brought to you by plantadvice.co.uk for all your gardening needs.